This is Judaism Unbound, episode 15, Men, Women, and Intermarriage. Welcome back, everyone. I'm Dan Liebenson. And I'm Lex Rofus. So last week, we wrapped up our series, Judaism in America, Evolutions, Revolutions, or Something Else. There's still a lot to talk about in terms of particularities of Judaism in America, and we will in the episodes ahead. Uh, This week, we're starting a new section, a new series of episodes on a particular dimension of American Judaism that we think is especially significant, and that's intermarriage. We've called this series Intermarriage, the New Normal, and we're pleased to welcome to the show for the first episode, Dr. Karen McGinnity, a historian of intermarriage in America. She has written two books that are especially relevant. Her first one was called Still Jewish, A History of Women and Intermarriage in America, and her second one is called Marrying Out. Jewish Men, Intermarriage, and Fatherhood. Dr. McGinnity is the founding director of the Love and Tradition Institute, and she is also the director of a new master's concentration in interfaith families Jewish engagement at Boston's Hebrew College. Karen, thank you so much for being with us. It's really great to have you on the show. My pleasure. Thanks so much for inviting me. Great. Lex and I are particularly excited to have you on at this point, having just had a few weeks of conversation about American Judaism. And clearly one of the things that comes up a lot when we think about Judaism in America is this question of intermarriage. And Lex and I wanted to start talking about that right away in the show. And we don't think there's anyone better than you to help us kind of set the context based on the two books that you've written. One, uh, your first book was Still Jewish, um, about women who uh, intermarry. And your second book, Marrying Out, is about Jewish men who intermarry. So you've certainly done a lot of uh, looking at all sides of things. And we just wanted to start by just having you lay out the basic sense of, well, what should our listeners know and be thinking about intermarriage? One of the things that inspired me to do the research and writing was the realization that although there was a wealth of material about intermarriage, there was very little scholarship that looked at gender and anything that mentioned gender did so in kind of a cursory manner. And there was nothing that looked at change over time. So approaching intermarriage as you know, a historian, which is how I was trained, and thinking about the questions such as, well, how, how did intermarriage change over time? And what was consistent about it? And did people who intermarry have similar or different experiences at, you know, one point in time or another? And then tying in and using gender as a primary category of analysis really shed all kinds of new and different lights on the meaning and experience of intermarriage. So most important for our listeners is to understand that in order to truly understand intermarriage, we need to understand how things change over time, both historical time and over the individual's life course. So can you give us some sense of what those things have been? Sure. Well, contrary to the kind of more common narrative or the narrative, I should say, prior to the publication of my books, um, was this idea that uh, intermarriage led to absolute assimilation, you know, that that once a Jew intermarried, he or she um, ceased to be Jewish, ceased to identify Jewishly, um, was no longer interested in participating in the community or in raising Jewish children. And by uh, studying Jews who intermarried, 
uh, I was able to discern first in my first book, Still Jewish, A History of Women in Intermarriage, um, that contrary to that assumption, women actually became more interested in identifying Jewishly and in Judaism and in proactively raising Jewish children through education, um, cultural and religious education, um, rather than just relying on dissent, for example, than they were earlier in the 20th century. So that change in time, as it was influenced by social context and various social movements, changed the meaning and experience of intermarriage. Um, and then the gender uh, similarities and differences also that arose make clear that there's much more to understand in terms of whether the Jew in the equation is a woman or a man. So just to getting to the first point, I mean, so you're saying that there were cultural context forces that have, over the course of time, made it more likely that a Jewish woman who intermarries is interested in being more active about understanding the role of Judaism in her life and in her children's lives? Or are you saying that that was always the case and maybe changes over time have made it easier for such people to actually do those things? Well, let me sort of trace a little bit of history for you. Women who intermarried at the beginning of the 20th century, for example, were predominantly immigrant women who married into those we know about, I should say, and we only know about them from, um, you know, diaries or letters or uh, publications, and there, there are not very many. More women may have intermarried than we even know because the earliest social science um, that used distinctive Jewish last names may have missed Jewish women who intermarried and took on their husbands, you know, let's say non-distinctive Jewish, <laughs> not uh, Jewish sounding names at all. Um, these women uh, who married into the upper echelons of American kind of Protestant circles um, still identified as Jewish, but were not as outward or as proactive about their identities or their Judaism. And particularly during times of high anti-Semitism prior to the Second World War and in the you know, even in the immediate post-war years, there wasn't as much comfort level with self-identifying as a Jew in America. So it stands to reason that intermarried Jewish women who were Jewish and still Jewish were not necessarily coming out and saying that they were Jewish. They would admit being Jewish if they were asked, but it was not, you know, on, on the forefront. It was not something that they shared um, without necessarily being asked. And there was much more reliance on matrilineal descent so that women who intermarried, say, at mid-century, believed that their children were Jewish by bloodline. But then when we have the um, rise of the new ethnicity, you know, and, and uh, the whole movement, kiss me, I'm fill in the blank, including Jewish, and becoming an ethnic uh, minority had much more cultural cachet, if you will, than women were increasingly more uh, vocal about their Jewish identities. Uh, and simultaneously, 
with the rise of second wave feminism, when women were no longer subordinating their professional lives or their religious or ethno-religious identities to their husbands, they certainly were that much more proactive about their own identities. And then toward the end of the century, the 1980s, 1990s, and then the beginning of the 21st century where we are now, women relied less on bloodline or on descent uh, and much more on Jewish education for themselves as well as for their children. So we get, you know, the double bat mitzvah where the Jewish mother and daughter are becoming b'nai mitzvah simultaneously. You mentioned matrilineal and patrilineal descent. And so basically the reform movement um, in the early 80s actively stood up and said, we define Jews not just by matrilineal descent, um, but through patrilineal descent also. So either a Jewish mother or a Jewish father, for those who aren't familiar with the jargon, determines that somebody who is their child is Jewish. Um, To what extent has that decision played a role in intermarriage trends since then? Well, first of all, um, let me just give a shout out to the Reconstructionist movement and uh, also secular humanistic Judaism, because the Reconstructionist um, actually uh, predates the Reform oh. Movement um, with regard to patrilineal descent. They changed their policy in 1968, uh, and also um, secular humanist Judaism has always uh, made descent egalitarian, if you will. So um, it's important to bear in mind that while the reform movement's decision was and continues to be very important, that there were prior decisions in other branches of Judaism with regard to dissent. In terms of influencing intermarriage, um, I think that uh, the patrilineal dissent issue is one of the least well understood and absolutely the least well marketed uh, in terms of folks truly understanding it, because it's it's not an automatic, that is, that children of Jewish parents need to be educated as Jews and prepare to become, for example, a bar bat mitzvah and, and affiliate and, and be involved in the community. So it's not just an, a biological, you know, rubber stamp. Right. Um, second of all, um, with regard to, in particular, intermarried Jewish men, although it seemingly made dissent egalitarian, um, it also contributed to some serious lack of consensus across the movements uh, and therefore um, make it more difficult to be an intermarried Jewish man and subsequently children of an intermarried Jewish man um, than it is to be an intermarried Jewish woman or the children of an intermarried Jewish woman um, with regard to dissent because there is no consensus. Um, And one of the influences, I believe, or outcomes has been that Jewish men who were raised in more traditional uh, movements, uh, if they fall in love with and marry a woman of another faith or cultural background, are more likely to shift or migrate to a more liberal or and or more welcoming uh, branch of Judaism where they feel comfortable, accepted, welcome, and where their children will be counted or otherwise identified as Jews. 
On the subject of gender differences, people say that generally the mother is a more significant figure in the way that family life runs in many ways. And so therefore, women who intermarry are able to raise their children Jewish more successfully than men who intermarry. Then that therefore, for example, people say it's more important for a man who's intermarrying to have the woman that he's marrying convert to Judaism because of, you know, whatever beliefs that there are that women ultimately uh, are the ones who make these kind of decisions. And I'm wondering whether your research bears any of that out or contradicts that and, and whether there are other gender differences or lack of gender differences that you think really have been important and that kind of bust or support various myths that there are in the Jewish, organized Jewish world. Uh, yes and no. <laughs> it's not that it's more important for the spouse of intermarried Jewish men to convert than it is for the spouse of intermarried Jewish women to convert. What's most important is that the Jew in the equation, whether it's a man or a woman, is proactive about raising Jewish children. So we we know from research that statistically uh, more millennial children of intermarriage with intermarried Jewish mothers are raised as Jews than are those of intermarried Jewish fathers. So that certainly illustrates your for the first part of your question. And it's not that I found evidence to the contrary. Like I, I'm not contesting that data in terms of the imbalance there, if you will. What I am dismantling is the idea that somehow it all falls on the woman's shoulders, whether she's the born Jewish woman or the fellow traveler or the woman of another faith or cultural background who marries a Jewish man. I wanted, as we're sort of breaking down societal constructs, I wanted to confront another, which is which is heteronormativity. So one thing that I saw on your website, which made me really happy, there's these faces of intermarriage, faces of Jewish intermarriage, and they include some male male couples, some female female couples. And um, I'm curious, because so far we've been talking about you know, male-female partnerships and and what happens in those situations. I'm curious, as we now live in a country which, thank God, has legalized has legalized lesbian and gay marriage, how that might play into these discussions. To date, very little research has been done on same-sex interfaith couples and families, and more certainly needs to be done. Uh, whether it's by myself or someone else. Uh, a colleague of mine, Jonathan Krasner, has done some. And from what I understand, having listened to him speak recently, uh, is that there are many, many similarities, actually, between uh, heterosexual um, interfaith and same-sex interfaith marriages. And one of them, and this is him, I believe, quoting one of his um, interviewees, is that we all have to potty train, you know, so that uh, um, who, who does it ultimately is, you know, not, not that it's irrelevant, but everyone's going to have to, to do things. And whether it's two men in the uh, relationship or two women in the relationship or two transgender individuals in the relationship, you know, there are certain basic things that that are going to need to get done. Um, and with regard to the Jewish piece of it, there's much more that we need to ask and understand to be able to better explain, you know, what is it about the tenacity of Jewishness that then comes to light 
in the cases of relationships where the people are, in fact, the same sex. You know, and there may be a way to get at it in some form or fashion by looking at some of the differences that came to light through my research on women and men, um, just to get back to um, the earlier question about more of those differences that Dan posed. Um, and that has to do with some of the, the simple differences as well as the more significant ones. One simple difference had to do with the extent to which uh, men raised the topic of sex during interviews, that is intercourse, um, whereas women did not raise that issue at all. And also that a very, very significant difference had to do with a kind of longer or shorter fuse, whereby if a Jewish woman, for example, was seeking a rabbi to officiate or co-officiate at her marriage ceremony, if the first rabbi said no, she might keep going until she found someone. So if that woman were in, you know, either a a heterosexual or a same-sex marriage or, or relationship, she would still keep going in order to find a rabbi to perform the, the marriage. Whereas for men, there's a somewhat shorter fuse. And if the um, rabbi or, or cantor, uh, whoever the clergy member is, says, you know, that they're not comfortable or that due to the movement they're in, they can't officiate that that male um, may react with kind of um, more instantaneous, well, you know, if, if you're rejecting my relationship, I'm rejecting Judaism. So there's there's a real um, gender difference there, which I think would play out regardless of whether the relationship is heterosexual or same-sex. I mean, one of the things that's really interesting about that, that as I've been listening to you on that, I've been thinking about is, um, you know, there's this question of whether the issue in the case of, let's say, types of people who have been in one way or another excluded from mainstream Jewish community or or made to feel unwelcome, that essentially is the issue that we really want to see one of those communities becoming more open to such people, being more welcoming, more tolerant, etc.? Or are we really potentially seeing that a much more radical or a much larger reimagination of things might be necessary or might actually naturally come. And one of the things that I was thinking about as you were describing the gender differences was that if a Jewish community, if the Jewish community, for example, sees intermarriage as inevitable and just simply part of the fabric of American life, then interestingly, it potentially suggests different ways in which we want to raise Jewish men, right? Reasons why it becomes more significant, even just from a self-preservation standpoint to say, oh, so therefore, it's really important to redefine the understanding of what it is to be a man in Judaism and how important it is for men to take responsibility for all kinds of dimensions of life that used to be considered the realm of women's responsibility. And of course, those are also in line with progressive values and all sorts of notions that we have today about what really is the right way to be a man. But nevertheless, it's interesting to think about that as actually also um, resonant with self-preservation from a a Jewish standpoint. Um, And I wonder whether that could actually, um, you know, what would happen if if Jewish uh, organizations actually kind of got that and started to take that idea seriously? From your mouth to God's ears. 
That's absolutely, (laughs) it's what needs to happen. I mean, this is sort of the, you know, the the biggest nut that needs to be cracked, something Mm -hmm. that I, I, I think about all the time that keeps me up at night. And, you know, it's something that would be, it's, it's almost like a moral imperative for the Jewish community to, to take the lead on this. And lo and behold, if, if, if it comes, no, when it comes to fruition, uh, then, you know, I'd like to think that there will be ripple effects uh, outside of the Jewish people and community and that all people will benefit from this because it really is about equality. And it's about responsibility. You're absolutely right in terms of stepping up to the parenting plate. Um, and it's also about helping um, all genders reach their full human potential and enabling them, supporting them, encouraging them to live fulfilling lives. And thus far, you know, as far as we've come as human beings, we haven't um, really tapped that. And um, that is evident in the ways in which there's these ongoing imbalances. And I don't just mean that the, the gender pay issue, um, which is part, certainly part of it, but it's also about, you know, opening up options and opportunities for all genders to both do the kind of work that they want to do and do what they want to do within the home and with their children so that they have balanced and fulfilled lives. It's it's part of what makes us who we are. And as it stands currently, you know, women may not uh, achieve, uh, or most women may not achieve the same um, level of, of uh, professional success because of some of the choices they make. But if men are always making those professional choices or being more highly valued for what they do outside of the home than what they do inside of the home, it makes it very difficult for them to give up, if you will, the higher salary that contributes to the ability to have the larger home and the faster car and this whole construction of um, a man being, you know, what he makes rather than who who he really is. And men are not fully visible if they're only seen by the size of their paychecks rather than as the people who want to help nurture the next generation of Jews and all other people. Actually, I just happened to uh, have been having a conversation with some folks at our synagogue, uh, which I don't attend very often, but um, we were talking about, you know, what else could the synagogue be doing to have a person like me feel like this is actually an organization that I was getting something out of and actually the conversation not relating to intermarriage, but the conversation turned to this issue of of men because part of what came up was this idea that at least not all, of course, but a lot of Jews and Jewish men, um, I think, have a set of progressive values in which they think, you know, in theory, yes, it, it is important for men to carry their weight in the home in various ways. And yet they weren't trained to do those things. They don't know how to, right? They don't know how to cook. They don't know how to do those things so well. So sure, they could teach themselves and they should, and they should seek out that um, understanding. But what if the synagogue actually offered that training, right? To adult men as kind of like a real bar mitzvah, for example, right? To, to really say this is part of the formation of men that um, is part of what our values are. And that 
you know, and and that actually coming to synagogue for your cooking class would not be seen as like a social thing to do or a cultural kind of thing to do, but actually as in a way a religious thing to do. And what's really interesting to me in thinking about this is that maybe that kind of thing would be more likely to happen if it could be positioned for Jewish organizations that actually this is in your self-interest, because if you are actually developing a generation of men who do play that role, then they're actually more likely to raise Jewish children. There is, um, I I agree, kind of this disconnect between young uh, men who um, want to have egalitarian relationships, who want to have the opportunity to be actively involved in creating a, a Jewish home and uh, or you know raising Jewish children, but don't necessarily have the skills in part because that's not how they were parented, you know. And uh, through through no one's fault, I'm not placing blame on anyone, but I do think that. It would be not just amazing, but that it's really incumbent upon Jewish organizations of all kinds, synagogues, uh, as well as, you know, JCCs and, uh, you know, all, really all forms of Jewish organizations to provide programming that give men the opportunity to learn things that they didn't uh, necessarily when they were growing up, and then also to provide programming that allows them to learn alongside their young children so that there's no um, kind of expectation of Judaic, you know, literacy or competence. Because I think that one of the kind of gender stumbling blocks, if you will, is that there's sort of this self-inflicted assumption of of needing to know, you know, and it, it, it kind of there's this parallel with the joke about men not stopping for directions and how mm-hmm. GPS kind of eliminated that issue. But there's no Jewish GPS, per se, yet. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. But but there need to be programs, much greater acknowledgement that, you know, it's it's okay that if the born Jew does not know something or the raised Jew or the, the person who enters relationship self-identifying as Jewish doesn't know something, you know, whether it's cooking or anything else for that matter, that they can learn. They can learn the bracha for, for lighting the Shabbos candles in addition to knowing the Kiddush if they already know that kind of thing. Do you know what I'm saying? Um, and, yeah. and currently so much of the programming is geared toward women um, and much of the literature and the visuals even are of women with young children. There needs to be much greater focus on um, men being actively, you know, engaged in doing Jewish and in being Jewish parents. Right. I mean, it seems like a lot of the programming directed at men is things like, let's have a basketball game, you know, while the kids are in Hebrew school or whatever, as opposed to saying, how can we really think about how men could be engaged, but engaged in a way that actually develops them in ways that they actually probably want to be developed? There's so much more that needs to be done for men. Um, And I I know in, in part, I feel like it would, you know, my mother raised me to believe that you can never, it never hurts to say you're sorry. And I feel like in many ways men have been inadvertently disenfranchised from Judaism and um, more, certainly more men than women have issues with organized religion 
as a whole. Mm-hmm. And I think that there have been slights, um, and some of those slights may be perceptual, if not actual, but it, it wouldn't hurt for, for organizations, institutions, the Jewish community to say, you know, we're sorry if your identity was ever questioned. We're sorry that somebody told your child, well, you're not really Jewish because your mother's not Jewish. You know, let us sort of right the wrongs. Give us another chance. We value you. You're important and we want you. You know, we want you and we want your loved ones. It's, it's a right. pretty, it's pretty simple, but it hasn't right. fully been said. And it's important to recognize and kind of embrace the fact that it has never been cooler to be Jewish than it is mm-hmm. right now. <laughs> Woo-hoo! So at the same time that we can celebrate that and do celebrate that, um, I think, you know, that also contributes perhaps to our allure and appeal to the so-called stranger, right? Previously uh, in history, um, it was it was less cool to marry a Jew because Jews were seen as less cool. Now that we're super cool, um, people you know who who weren't born or raised Jewish won't necessarily think twice about marrying us, and you know that could be used as as part of the explanation for why intermarriage has increased. Um, over time. And at the same time, it should also be understood to explain the ways in which we can attract more people to living a Jewish life, to creating a Jewish home, and to raising Jewish children than ever before in history. Um, and, and indeed, you know, although there there are more intermarried Jews today than there used to be. There are also more children of intermarriage identifying as Jews than there used to be. And, and in terms of what happens when somebody intermarries, even earlier before it was as hip to be Jewish as it is now, people who intermarried, whether males or females, often became, like their Jewish identities became cast into high relief, if you will, in contrast to their Christian or non-Jewish or Gentile, whichever word you prefer, spouse. You know, it, it caused them to question, what does being Jewish mean? How am I Jewish? And in the cases where they're raising Jewish children, how do I transmit that to my, our child? And certainly um, the influence of becoming a parent kind of helped fuel that need to better understand one's own Jewish identity. So that. You know, that's been the case, which has been increasing over time. Um, and now you have the, the influx of folks who are interested in learning more about the Jewish people, Jewish community, Jewish life, and Judaism. And therefore, you know, rather than cast intermarriage in a negative light, one can see it in um, as, as an opportunity and as one that we can truly optimize if we change the way we talk about it and also use every, every skill we have, every tool we have in our toolboxes to help people understand who the Jewish people are, peoples, I should say, and that's, um, you know, Jews of, of every ethnicity and, and color and sexual orientation and preference and, and that we're a family that wants people to join us rather than one that is exclusive for people who only think a certain way. 
It makes me think about um, my own kids, and actually, I'm married to a Jewish woman, so the issue for my family isn't intermarriage, but we very much, my wife and I, are trying to think differently about Judaism and about what it means to us to be Jewish. And what's interesting is that uh, we have one child who is older, and he's about to have his bar mitzvah. And we talked to him about, you know, well, what would you want to have for your bar mitzvah? Like, you could do anything, you know, because we're a Jewish family that's committed to creativity and to reimagining Judaism. And he said, uh, well, I think I'd like to read from the Torah and, you know, make a speech. <laughs> and I was so frustrated, you know, but I realized that as a parent, I, I didn't know how to raise a child to have the perspective that I have on Judaism. So... I just did the best I could and I enrolled him where, where it was available and, and every once in a while I had some interesting conversations with him, but apparently it wasn't enough to give him that sort of edgy <laughs> spirit, at least not at the age of 13. Not yet, yeah. Don't yeah, worry. no, not teenagers not are not edgy. They think they are, but <laughs> That's true. But, but I compare that to my daughter who's 10 and by the time she was old enough to start learning Jewish things, a um, independent kind of after school um, Jewish Jewish education provider had um, come up in our community. And they're very much experts in how to teach and, and they're using all kinds of interesting pedagogies and they're really committed to this perspective of people being empowered to create their own Judaism. And so I think that when the time comes for my daughter's bat mitzvah, she will be much more likely to go in some edgy direction because she actually has had that education. And so that's just making me think about folks that are intermarried and you know, to the extent that they may want to raise their children to be Jewish and to really be Jewish in new and interesting ways, etc. The reality is that they don't know how. They're not educators, most of them, and they and and how are they supposed to know how to do it? It's a relatively new thing. And so, you know, it feels to me that like one of the things that I'm getting as I'm listening to you is is understanding that if the Jewish community was reorienting itself to saying intermarriage is part of what it is to be Jewish in America today, and therefore we need to actually construct new educational systems, new programs of, of one kind or another that are capable of helping parents know how to raise kids Jewish in an intermarried family, then um, that might actually be possible. And I guess I'm sort of wondering, like, do, do things like that exist already? Are there are there moves to create such things? And I, maybe that goes into what you're, as a practitioner, trying to accomplish through the, the institute that you've created, the Love and Tradition Institute, or, or maybe not. But I'm wondering what's going on or what might be going on to help some of these things. It's funny because if one understands the meaning of bar mitzvah or bat mitzvah, there's a direct connection there with the Torah. So, you know, how edgy does one want to be or need to be in order to be edgy, you know, and, and, and does that exclude the Torah? Um, I, I don't think so. I, I, I think that, uh, you know, what what's happening and what we're in the process of doing is finding ways to reinterpret tradition and use tradition in new ways that are meaningful today so that it resonates with people and so that people can comfortably answer the question, why be Jewish? Um, and what does being Jewish mean? In terms of you know, not, not being educated, I mean, folks who are completely new 
to Judaism and, and Jewishness, you know, want to learn, understandably, I think, kind of, you know, some basics or sort of like what they, they don't, they don't have the, the history, they don't have the, the lineage, they don't have the, the cultural baggage, and, I, and I've had people share with me who have intermarried and ha- who have become become Jewish, you know, through various forms of conversion, that, you know, because their their family, their ancestors weren't peddlers or they didn't lose anyone in the Holocaust, that, you know, that, that it's challenging for them to feel fully Jewish, and yet many of them are um, more actively Jewish than some born or raised Jews. There definitely is an effort underway uh, to educate people uh, about Jewish parenting and also to educate people who are involved in intermarriages and the educators who are serving them. So in addition to, to my work as the founding director of the Levin Tradition Institute, which is committed to opening hearts and broadening minds about this relationship between Jewish intermarriage and gender. Um, I am also going to be directing a new program at Hebrew College, um, which is part of the, the graduate school's master's in Jewish education, and it's specifically for Jewish educators who are going to be working in the Jewish community on interfaith Jewish family engagement and what needs to happen and, and what we're in the process of doing is developing curricula and, and programs so that people can really understand both where we've come from and, and who we're trying to serve, who are intermarried people and it, because they can't use, they, they can't and shouldn't be lumped together as if they're this one, right. you know, homogeneous right. group, the intermarried. And it's really important for there to be more education. Uh, and certainly, um, Hebrew College has developed this innovative, um, concentration and, and I'm privileged to be a part of it. And there's parenting through a Jewish lens, uh, which is another program. And there's work by um, one of my um, organizational allies, Interfaith Family, another one, Big Ten Judaism, you know, who are trying to develop the kinds of programs that, that you refer to that are absolutely essential. Well, I have a question that sort of stems from that in terms of what you've seen and what you're seeing. I feel like sometimes even in these conversations, even in these pro-intermarriage conversations, we have an assumption that the non-Jewish spouse is relatively un, relatively not religious in, in, their, in their religion. Um, and I'm thinking, for example, of let's say, a rabbi who would marry a pastor. Why couldn't that happen, right? Like, I could imagine that there's people ranging from, you know, someone who says, hey, I, I want to convert to Judaism. I'm very happy to convert to Judaism. And like, you know, ranging to somebody who says, you know, I don't want to convert to Judaism, but I'm very happy to raise the kids Jewish. I'm not very religious in my own religion. And I'm happy for this to be a Jewish family, but I'm not going to be Jewish. Maybe because I'm so not religious that it actually seems weird to me to convert to another religion. I kind of don't actually want to be any religion, you know, and then, um, you know, ranging to maybe somebody who would say, no, I actually 
M. And I actually know um, a couple like this, one of one member of which is a rabbi and one member of which is a very devout Catholic. It's an interesting personal story. And it seems so unusual that sometimes you wonder if it really is widely applicable. But I'm wondering if that's something that actually does exist in a substantial amount or could exist if we were more, if we had language to describe it, if we had more of a sense of what that might be. I think it does exist, and there are uh, organizations that cater to people who are raising children both or otherwise celebrating dual faiths in one home. I think that those exist, and certainly the the rabbi married to the pastor or the the uh, devout Jew and the devout Catholic. Um, who fall in love can find a way and have found a way to navigate that relationship. I think those are more exceptional than not, at least in my own research on intermarried Jewish women and intermarried Jewish men. Women tended to um, marry men who were not particularly uh, religious. In fact, I sometimes describe those relationships as faith-no-faith rather than interfaith. And, right, right. you know, the, the, the woman who responded when I asked, well, what's, what's your husband's ethno-religious background? And she, you know, or how does he identify? And she said, well, he's an engineer. <laughs> you know, that was the answer. <laughs> um, whereas with men, they, intermarried Jewish men, they um, oftentimes are finding women who actually have, um, you know, grown up in a, in a church um, or other house of worship and feel very strongly about religion, but are willing to raise Jewish children or in some cases to, to become Jewish themselves um, in order to create a singular religious identity for the family. Um, and and that, that's been a previous assumption, actually, is that well, you know, if someone, if one of the partners feels strongly about their, or both partners feel strongly, it's going to be a disaster. Well, no, not not necessarily, <laughs> because um, particularly in the case of intermarried Jewish men and their loved ones, um, those women can see the value of Judaism and appreciate it and, and be accepting of it. Whether someone actually becomes Jewish or not, I agree that is a highly personal decision. Um, and it also sometimes can involve their parents, you know, their family of origin. I've had people tell me that they, you know, would consider becoming Jewish, but only after their parents passed away kind of thing, you know, that 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 would be very difficult for them to do while their parents were still living. I think that, uh, I I just want to clarify that I see this conversation um, more as one that is looking at all of the various permutations uh, and, and the meanings of intermarriage and experiences of intermarriage rather than being a pro-intermarriage conversation. Um, I've been asked uh, more than once whether I'm for marriage or against marriage. <laughs> intermarriage, pardon me. <laughs> One, well, or marriage, but intermarriage specifically. <laughs> Am I for intermarriage or against intermarriage? And my response is always, um, I'm neither for nor against intermarriage. I am a witness to it. Uh, and I, I think it's important to kind of maintain that ability to to look and and not necessarily pick a side per se in order to be able to fully understand it. Just as we want people who aren't Jewish to understand Jews and Judaism, it's equally important for Jews to understand 
people who feel strongly about about their faiths and and ways of living. With regard to multi-faith households, and and you mentioned this um, this man and this woman who you know, then you know the question about children is a truly salient one with regard to Jewish uh, peoplehood and the reality of our being a tiny minority in the world. Um, and if there are multiple faiths being actively practiced in one house, and I don't just mean having a Christmas tree, I mean multiple belief systems, um, then will Judaism win out? That's challenging. Well, is there anything that we haven't asked you that you would like to say at this stage and something that you th- anything that you think is important that we haven't covered? I think that along the lines of what you're doing with Judaism Unbound, I think that, and here I'll paraphrase um, Rabbi Ed Feinstein, who I had the privilege of hearing uh, speak recently, um, who was talking about Jewish discontinuity. And uh, as in contrast to this kind of narrative of continuity that we've been living with for a while now, um, thinking about, you know, how things need to stay the same or how our people from our uh, Jewish patriarchs and matriarchs kind of all the way down to our present day um, Jewish leaders maintain a certain uh, language that actually some of our greatest innovations from Jewish leaders and, and great books of, of uh, history and culture have come during times of discontinuity, and that's, you know, with regard to both the, the Jewish exodus and uh, the, the Holocaust and the establishment of the State of Israel, and, and now um, thinking about intermarriage to be open to thinking innovatively and creatively to the ways in which we both describe Jewish identity and who is Jewish, and also to create uh, programs that are uh, as inclusive and pluralistic and egalitarian as, as possible. That's part of what is as compelling about Judaism today as it's ever been and as it, I think, will be in the future is the kind of discontinuity or unbounding or or releasing, if you will, to do Jewish and be Jewish in all kinds of ways that have yet to be imagined. I think that that note of discontinuity and unbounding, while maybe an uncertain one, is a perfect one for us to, to wrap up with. So I, I just want to say thank you once again to Dr. Karen McGinnity for, for coming on. Thank you so much for having me and for founding Judaism Unbound and all best wishes. As always, we want to remind our listeners to be in touch with us with any questions, comments that you have about this episode or any of our past episodes. And here are a few ways you can do that. First, you can reach us on our Facebook page, Judaism Unbound. You can also send us emails at lex at nextjewishfuture.org or dan at nextjewishfuture.org. And last but not least, you can check out our website, judaismunbound.com, that has show notes for all of our episodes, including this one, with interesting links for you to check out and all sorts of other good stuff. And last but not least, next week we have another great episode coming up featuring Paul Golan for the second part of our block of episodes on intermarriage, and we hope you'll join us for that. 
This has been Judaism Unbound. <laughs>